Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Professor Priyamvada Gopal, who is a professor of post-colonial studies in the Faculty of English at the University of Cambridge and is the author of a number of books, including most recently, Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent. Thanks for joining us, Priya. Thank you for having me. I guess just to begin with, what brought you to post-colonial studies? Ah, oh, that's, a, that's a, a very good question. It, it was several years ago. I, I had a degree in English and then I had a degree in linguistics. And I knew that I wanted to do scholarship that was inclined towards uh, engaging with issues of social and political relevance. I didn't want to do English literature in the classic sense, but I did want to do research. So when I arrived in the United States to do my postgraduate work, my doctoral work, I think I eventually gravitated towards the field because at the time it was engaging with issues to do with international affairs, the legacies of empire, nation, the afterlife of colonialism, and so on. So there was a, there was a, this was in the 90s, in the mid-90s, and it was a very, I think, exciting time in some ways to be doing scholarship, scholarship that kind of linked, if I might use Edward Said's phrase, the world, the text, and the critic, and post-colonial studies allowed me to do that. That said, actually, I should, I should perhaps add a caveat. When I did my first book, I very consciously moved away from looking at empire to looking at nation building and what it meant to have independence from empire and what went into the making of the Indian nation. So actually, although I I went into post-colonial studies, I didn't actually work on colonialism. I worked instead on questions of dissent and resistance in in Urdu writing uh, on the Indian subcontinent. I guess also, more specifically, what was the impetus for writing Insurgent Empire? What was the sort of uh, environment that brought this book forth? So, as I just said, when I started out my career and in my early work as a young scholar, I was very much not working on empire. I'd actually been very persuaded by arguments like that made by the late Ejaz Ahmed that those of us from the subcontinent working on these materials really needed to not be fixated, uh, that is his word, on empire, but really we needed to talk about questions of relevance to actually existing post-colonial nations. Um, and that 
that did mean that we didn't only talk about empire, but that we talked about gender, sexuality, caste, um, our power structures, our silences, uh, our violence, and so on. So I very consciously was working on not empire. I then moved to Britain in the early 2000s and very slowly started to get drawn into, what can I say, not exactly public debates, but a public engagement with Britain's imperial legacies and what, how Britain should think about the empire. And what I realized after moving to Britain, and, and I think this was quite a surprise to me, is that there is very little understanding in the British school system and in higher education, in certainly in the media sphere, about what happened during the centuries of empire, um, how the empire came to an end, and how people relate to that particular history. So for a while, I was trying to figure out whether I should, in fact, now uh, start thinking about empire, start writing about empire. And I was approached by publishers and editors and agents, you know, wanting me to produce, in a sense, a counter history to that of Neil Ferguson's account, which is a very glorifying account of British imperialism. And I thought about that and I realized that I didn't really want to just do a counter history, uh, you know, so it replaced the good with the, uh, the bad, as it were. I wanted to do something more interesting. And I think what I ended up with in the end when writing Insurgent Empire was something that drew on my early work on dissident traditions in, on the subcontinent and on British engagements with empire. And what I decided to look at, because I very firmly believe that all cultures, all civilizations, all contexts have traditions of resistance in them, I decided to pick up the theme of resistance and apply it to empire and think about two things. One, resistance, obviously, to the British empire in the colonies, But I wanted to bring in another dimension, and this is a dimension I think that British readers and young British people, my students certainly know very little about, and that is the fact of domestic dissent against imperialism. People who were essentially in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries saying, uh, young British, uh, sorry, British people who were saying, not in our name, that the violence of empire, the exploitation, the oppression, the racism, uh, that these are not things that they were willing to be associated with by virtue of being uh, British subjects. So I basically brought together in insurgent empire resistance to the British empire within Britain and outside Britain and examined the relationship between the two things. Because in a sense, I think just doing a counter history of empire is probably unproductive. That really what we need to be thinking about is what is the basis on which people challenged the British empire? What is the basis on which people protested? And what is, I think, and this is the third element, what is the relationship between different sets of protesters and resistors? You know, how how did they relate to each other? How did they come together? How did they construct what we would call, you know, bonds of solidarity? So that's what I ended up examining in, in Insurgent Empire. Priya, your book examines a number of what might be termed exemplary revolts and the circulation of ideas and struggles between the imperial core and colonial periphery. And you begin with the Indian revolt of 1857. Why was that so important to re-examine in your book? You know, in, in one sense, it was arbitrary. I, I, I 
studied, I guess, in the early stages of the book, I studied a lot of rebellions and movements and read up a great deal and realized that, you know, even in as thick a book as Insurgent Empire ended up being, I I could not possibly, you know, cover more than a a small number of such kind of exemplary uh, moments and movements. And I decided that I would basically do a hundred year span and I would begin in 1857 in a sense partly due to my own biography being uh, having been raised largely in, in India, uh, that this was the revolt that I knew the most about. Because, of course, in the Indian context, um, when I was growing up, it was presented as uh, India's first sort of national war of independence, which, which it really was not, but, but it is certainly how that is presented in, in the Indian context. So I, I suppose I began with the revolt that I was most familiar with. But I think there was another reason. I think it is that you start to realize, reading the scholarship, that 1857 was a jolting moment for the British public sphere. It is a moment at which I think there was widespread anger, controversy, certainly mourning. Uh, And I think the empire, as an empire, emerged into the British wider consciousness as never before with 1857. And, you know, this is the this is the era in which you're starting to have things like the telegraph, you're starting to have means of uh, global communication coming to being. So I think it, it, it had a certain biographical and kind of personal intellectual importance for me. But I also think that the British public a- engagement around the empire uh, really starts to become something in 1857. And I think I think that's a sort of combination of uh, sort of biographical and scholarly reasons to begin there. And why do you think that tackling these mythologies of empire are so important and how do they serve current political interests in Britain? Well, for those who've been watching Britain, you will know that the last... I would say, decade or so has been fraught with uh, what is referred to as quote-unquote culture wars. And of course, the British Empire and particularly race have become flashpoints in these concocted wars. Uh, and, And I use the word culture war cautiously because it's not something that is organic. It's something that's very much foisted on the British people by politicians and the media. But such as they are, empire has once again become a subject of controversy and a degree of debate. I say a degree because I think that the debate is extremely cartoonish and um, extremely, in a sense, cynical and, and, and backward. It's not really a debate. It's, it's people taking positions, you know, good or bad, that kind of thing. But I think that in Britain, we now really are in a situation where it is a country divided into people who want to genuinely engage with the past and genuinely understand how that present shapes, how that past shapes the present. And people for whom the mythologies of empire, uh, you know, of, of, a, of a glorious and benevolent nation that even though it made a few mistakes along the way and a few people died along the way, it was basically a force for good. And I think we can see that quite apart from the divisions within Britain and the ways in which empire is used, certainly events of great moment like Brexit 
were premised on the re-entrenching of these mythologies of, once again, you know, uh, talking about about Britain as unique, Britain as exceptional, Britain as a force for the good in the world, um, and and explicitly connecting that back to Britain's heyday, uh, you know, of, of imperial glory. So I think there is a way in which on the one hand, empire is the subject of, you know, culture warring, as it were. But on the other hand, it reminds us how very important it is to actually think about the empire and all its layers and, and all its complexities and, 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 you know, and its breadth across the world. Uh, because I think that British people, by and large, have been ill-served by their education system and ill-served by the dominant understanding of what the empire entailed and, and how, um, how they should relate to it. Um, another question that occurred to me um, in reading the book was the relationship between imperialism and nationalism. Can you talk a little bit about your understanding of that relationship and how it played out through this history? So, you know, one thing that starts to happen, and it, it, it's, it's incipient in 1857, and it becomes more and more explicit by the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, is that nation becomes the only legitimate form in which the colonized can make their demands. And it becomes in a sense, it, it speaks to the triumph of the West in terms of its categories of international legitimacy, uh, you know, of, of moral legitimacy. And the understanding that self-determination meant having your own nation really became unchallenged for the most part. And anti-colonialists frequently were part of movements that were demanding national independence. And I say frequently because not all anti-colonialists thought only in terms of nation, but certainly it became the language of demanding sovereignty, of demanding self-determination, of demanding the end of colonial rule. And it becomes, in my mind, kind of, I suppose, a kind of poisoned chalice, because it is the it is the only category in which you can make your demands heard. And it is the only category in which you can, where, well, not the only category, but it becomes a very influential category in terms of organizing and mobilizing the colonized, right, around the nation, around the Indian nation, um, around uh, uh, Egypt, um, around uh, Jamaica or Trinidad or, or wherever. And it becomes a category which allows pe peoples to make their demands. But I think, I suppose I look back on it now and I look back at insurgent empire now, uh, you know, three years on. And I think that it is a, the nation is a category which was emancipatory in some ways, but it also came laden with all sorts of pitfalls. And those pitfalls are becoming manifest in post-colonial contexts now. I, and I'm, and I'm saying this not to say that, you know, the nation uh, should should never have been the 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 category for or the vehicle for anti colonialism, but I think it came with a great deal of baggage, and some of that baggage is landing very heavily on um, on our feet now. Priya, could you speak a little bit about the Hindutva movement and how it I think relates to what you were just saying? Right. So what we have um, in India today, India, of course, in a few days will uh, commemorate the 75th anniversary of freedom from British rule in 1947. 
Now, the picture in 1947 is a complicated one. You obviously have one figure and one organization very much front and center, and that is the Indian National Congress, which is a kind of largely moderate national body, which employs as almost anyone knows, uh, employs Gandhian nonviolence, uh, Gandhi's conception of nonviolence uh, in order to press its demands and to win independence. But that story often obscures the fact that there were other parties in the fray as well. Of, of course, most obviously the Muslim League uh, and the Muslim League, of course, uh, ends up being uh, successful in its attainment of independent Pakistan. Uh, but there were also communists, socialists of different stripes, people who believed in militant violence, people who believed in outright uh, war. And there were, of course, dissident movements, including some of the people I wrote about in my first book, as well as, most importantly in the Indian context, the caste uh, organization, the, 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 uh, organ- the Dalit organizing uh, of the oppressed castes. Hindutva is an interesting and rather, how shall I say, uh, unusual creation at this point. They are not involved directly in the nationalist movement. They're not directly involved in anti-colonialism. There are one or two figures who start out as anti-colonialists. But what it is, is a nationalist movement that believes that India belongs to the Hindus and believes that anybody else really is a citizen of a second order. That, that Hindutva literally means Hinduness. And Hindutva believes in something it calls the Hindu Rashtra or the Hindu nation, and believes that India has since time immemorial been a Hindu nation, and that is what it should go back to being. It starts out as a fringe ideology and, 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 and of course, a fringe ideology very explicitly uh, admiring of uh, Nazi Germany, um, admiring of Hitler, ad- admiring of the kind of military authoritarian discipline uh, that you could see in both Mussolini's Balila squads and, of course, in Nazi Germany. It has its own organization, which is modeled on the Balila squads, the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh. And it was a fringe organization banned, in fact, in the immediate post-independence years, banned by Nehru. And now it sits at the heart of power in India. In, in other words, it has made that journey from a fringe ideology that wasn't even part of the nationalist movement, to now laying claim to the heart of power in the Indian state. And it has taken about 70 of those 75 years to to make that journey. And India today is at a very, very dangerous turning point where we now have an ethno-nationalist ideology capturing, I guess that is the best word, uh, both the idea of the Indian nation as well as the Indian state. Uh, and, and, and the thing to say about India, the Indian nation is that it was, it was a complicated formation, which nonetheless, in its early years, did hold on to an idea of inclusive equality, you know, regardless of religion, uh, creed or race. Um, and that is very much, I think, under pressure now. To return to the imperial Core in Britain, how did the 
throughout this century and I guess uh, preceding it, how do you think the ruling class attempted to provide a mass basis for imperialism? Through propaganda, really. Um, I mean, uh, there is uh, quite a lot of scholarship on empire and propaganda. And what we know is that consent in the imperial project uh, was elicited through a mixture, I suppose, of uh, ignorance. A lot of people then, as now, knew very little about it, even as they were you know, rallied or urged to rally around the, Imperi- uh, the Union Jack. And a great deal of propaganda, which essentially identified being patriotic about Britain with being a supporter of the British imperial project. So British nationalism is, is something that now, as well as then, is unthinkable uh, without the idea of uh, an empire, which is why I think there is still a great deal of media and political, I, I suppose, um, worship of the idea of Britain and, and its empire. Um, along with various rebellions and revolts and movements in uh, the British colonies, you also examine a number of different figures within Britain that were critics of colonialism. And these were uh, fairly diverse figures. Can you speak to just uh, a few of those uh, figures and what influence they had on, I guess, discourse around empire in Britain during this period? I think let me say one thing. Let me make one qualification, um, which is that several of the figures I look at are very important in their own right, but I make no claim in the book that they they had a wide influence. Um, I I think my claim really is that they had an influence over dissidents and dissident movements and dissident politicians. Self-evidently, resistance to empire within Britain was a minority tradition. It is a tradition, but it is a minority tradition. But let me talk about some of the some of the figures in there. And what is interesting, uh, and I think this is something I found interesting as I was you know, doing research, is how they come from quite different familial and political backgrounds. So in one chapter, I write about the very fierce anti-colonial uh, uh, figure of Wilfred Blunt. And Blunt is somebody who is a minor member of the aristocracy. He is connected to uh, the land-owning class. He, he has lands of his own as well in Sussex. And he starts out really as a kind of, you know, a family Tory, somebody who by virtue of his family background is, is a natural Tory. And he gets in increasingly involved in Islam as well as the Egyptian rebellion uh, of 1882, the Egypt, Egyptian uprising. And what is very interesting in his case is tracking the shift from being a kind of, you know, reasonably wealthy horse uh, collecting aristocrat to becoming really Egypt's biggest champion in Britain and becoming really also one of the most ferociously anti-colonial voices in the 19th century, by, you know, by the end of the 19th century. And he's interesting because he actually has access to the corridors of power um, because of his family background, because of his connections. He's able to talk to central figures in, involved in British imperialism, and he is certainly able to put the counter case uh, to them. Whether they listen to him is another matter, but he is somebody who is able to, in a sense, 
bring the voice of anti-colonialism into the corridors of British power. Then you have a very different uh, figure late in the, or, or in the middle of the 20th century, Fenner Brockway. Again, you know, uh, not, not especially wealthy, uh, a, a sort of middle-class, privately educated politician and journalist who becomes a parliamentarian, a lifelong parliamentarian. And he, again, sort of moves from being a liberal to a socialist uh, never, never a communist, but he moves leftwards and becomes in Parliament a, a very long-standing champion of Indian independence and eventually of anti-colonialism in East Africa. And and he spends his the really almost the entirety of his parliamentary career talking about British rule in India and in Africa and in, in other places. He becomes a, a founding member of the movement for colonial freedom. And again, he's a parliamentarian, so he, he has the influence that uh, someone in parliament does, albeit a backbencher. Uh, but he's again able to put anti-colonialism into public discourse. The very different sorts of figures I also talk about in the book are largely male and black campaigners for African independence, African freedom, African anti-colonialism. And these are people, some of whom will be better known than others, uh, people like C.L.R. James and George Padmore, I.T.A. Wallace Johnson, uh, in passing, um, Amy Ashwood Garvey. Uh, these are people who are organizing around various African uh, anti-colonial movements, most importantly, of course, Ethiopia, the Ethiopian cause uh, in the 1930s and 40s uh, in, in England. So there, there are quite a few different figures. There's also the, the figure of Nancy Cunard, uh, who, again, like Blunt, is born to an aristocratic uh, uh, family, but ends up breaking with her family, not least because of her connections both to communism and to black radicalism. Um, and she becomes a very important figure in articulating the anti-colonial cause back in Britain, and uh, particularly in, in terms of publishing and writing. The book's received a diverse response. As I think you noted earlier, some of the responses and, and some of the debates have been uh, a bit uh, clownish. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. And also, I guess, more productively, there's a sense in which the book provides a kind of, or could provide a, a firmer ground for contemporary critics of British neo-imperialism and, and, and shape their understanding of, of belonging to a, some kind of um, tradition that fights against colonialism and imperialism. So I'm wondering if there's not been a more positive reception on the part of those I, I guess you're, you're trying to, to reach and to, to educate. Well, one very interesting thing I should say is that although I personally get a lot of stick around uh, things that I have said about the empire, and I get stick because I am you know, uh, a woman of color at an institution that the uh, the right wing in Britain considers its own. You know, Oxbridge is is considered, in a sense, the bastion of 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 uh, I suppose the white right. And because I am there, and because I have said the things that I do in the public sphere, I get a lot of lot of hate hate uh, mail, hate coverage in the tabloid press and indeed in the Telegraph and the Times. But what is very interesting to me in this context is that the book has been completely ignored by the same people who take very deep interest in, uh, in a minor tweets from me on the subject. Um, I would have expected that 
this was a golden opportunity for my detractors to talk about what a terrible scholar I am and, you know, how terrible the book is. And in fact, uh, you know, people like Nigel Bigger, who is one of the great champions of the British Empire, uh, promised reviews um, and they never came out. So actually, I don't know what my detractors think about the book and I don't know that they've even read it. Uh, I, I think this. what is interesting to me is the silence around the one thing that I actually have written on the empire in favor of uh, making up things uh, about things that I've not said or, you know, taken out of context and so on. And that suggests to me there really isn't an interest in a scholarly discussion, that this is purely the subject of facile culture wars. In terms of reaching the people I want to reach, I think it is a happier story. I think the book has had a lot of mileage. It has been read by uh, non-academic readers. It has been read by young people. And I very much wanted, I think, this generation of young people in Britain to have access to a different story, to have access, as you just suggested in your question, to a different tradition in which they might place themselves. Uh, And that is a varied tradition. It's a politically varied tradition, as I suggested earlier. Uh, But it is a tradition. There is a tradition of saying, not in my name. And of course, it reaches all the way back to abolition and and anti-slavery, anti-enslavement movements in in Britain. And I think that, that for young people who are genuinely wanting to think about these issues, genuinely wanting to do grapple with history, I think that those are people, if, if, if I were to go by, you know, what people have written to me to say, or, or people have said in, in public conversations around the book, I think it has become part of a more serious discussion. There's an argument, I suppose, that the, the empire may be the British Empire may be something of a, a dead parrot, but in the post-Second World War era and subsequently, new forms of imperialism have emerged. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you have comments about how imperialism may not have disappeared, may have just manifested in a, in a different form, and whether or not that requires uh, new strategies of resistance. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question, and I'm not sure how fully I can answer it. But um, it occurs to me uh, that I should point to another aspect of the book, given the context of your program. Um, And that is, um, I was talking about people like George Padmore and CLR James and others in Britain. And and one of the points they made uh, that is not actually a debt parrot is that this distinction that we now have between fascism on the one hand and colonialism, on the other, has always been something of a false distinction, that that fascism and colonialism went very much hand in hand and very much drew on the same resources, the same ideological resources around authoritarianism and around race supremacy. But yeah, things have changed. In, in 2022, we are living in a world that was substantially shaped by the European colonial project in the classical sense, but is now you know, shaped by it, but is now different. And, and I suppose there are two things I would want to say in that regard. One is capitalism is a central part of colonialism. There is no point in discussing colonialism without thinking about the shape taken by capitalism. 
So although, you know, the European empires in the classical sense have largely ended, I mean, we do have a couple of outposts here and there, the interests and the considerations and the material, uh, um, I suppose, underpinnings that drove the imperial project are by no means gone. That certainly the apparatus it left in place, you know, highly unequal global order, very, very sharp gaps between rich nations and poor nations. Those are substantially the continuation of empire in a post-colonial, in a nominally post-colonial world. So uh, we cannot, we, we actually can't say that, that the, the empire is entirely a dead parrot. It might be something of a zombie parrot, um, that these things have not gone. But because I, I talked about, you know, you asked me about Hindutva and I talked about the nation as a poison chalice, I think it's important to also pay attention to the ways in which post-colonial polities, you know, nations in the global south, including but not restricted to India, can act as colonizers in their own right. And that is in, in, in different ways, partly by, you know, uh, in a sense, wholesale consent to the workings of capitalism on the one hand, and on the other hand, a relationship to populations within their official borders, which very much resembles how colonial states operated. So there's all kinds of colonialism happening within post-colonial states. And and here the relationship of fascism and colonialism, again, becomes very, very apparently close. I also think that we need, and this is a very, very difficult um, idea to articulate, but I think it needs to be said, that we need to stop focusing only on Britain or only on Europe are only on the United States as principal colonizers. Of course, these are polities which have, you know, legacies of empire and continue empire in in other ways, not least through NATO and, 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 and formations like that. But there are other expansionist colonizing powers in the fray. And I think that, you know, in the same breath that we talk about, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, we should be attentive to other players in the colonial game. And I think that, again, this is where we need to think about the relationship uh, of fascism and colonialism uh, more closely, pay attention to it. Well, that's all we have time for on the radio version of the show, but we'll have a few more questions on the podcast, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. The book is Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent, and people can, of course, follow you on Twitter at Priyamvada Gopal, or if they want a condensed version, they can just read you know, the Daily Mail and get the <laughs> tweets uh, brought to them every now and then. Yes, I mean, they brought quite a lot, <laughs> strangely. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Priya. Thank you.
headline in South Africa, show memory. The story of El Salvador, the silence of Hiroshima, destruction of Cambodia, show No time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. 
First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.